0: Well, way up north in the Canadian Rockies, uh, on the border between British Columbia and Alberta, Canada, there's a park called Kicking Horse Park, uh, named after an incident where one of the men who discovered it was at a river and he was kicked by, you might guess, a horse. And they named the place Kicking Horse River and now Kicking Horse Park. And if you go up there, you'll see the kind of things that you would expect to see at a national park in the Canadian Rockies. Very tall trees, even taller mountains, uh, a nature center, a campground, roads to connect the whole things, trails to go walk down, and people there on vacation having a good time. And one of the things you would see there if you went is a little creek that's up at the top of one of the mountains called Divide Creek uh, that you might go and see if you were there. But when you got there, you might be a little underwhelmed because it's not very impressive looking. Uh, It's maybe the distance from me to the pew across. It's not very far across. Uh, a foot or two deep and you know the kind of river that you and your kids try to pick out the dry rocks and sort of like cross on dry land because there's all those rocks in the middle of it so I could imagine myself and my kids trying to figure out how to get across the thing on the rocks not the most impressive creek in the world and yet people hike to it and they go see it and there's a reason why in this little creek which is called Divide Creek it sits on the Continental Divide uh, in Canada. And so, at one point, it eventually splits off into two smaller creeks. And the water that goes off to the left, because it's on the Continental Divide, will travel 500 miles to the west and pick up more streams and waters and eventually get pretty big along the way and will wind up in the Pacific Ocean. The water that forks to the right will travel some 1,500 miles to the east And we'll wind up in the Hudson Bay, 1,500 miles away, eventually either in the Arctic Ocean, 2,000 miles away, or in the Atlantic Ocean, 2,500 miles away. So you can stand at one of the rocks in the river and pour a bottle of water into the river, and in some month's time, half of the water that you poured will have traveled to the Pacific Ocean, and the other half of the water will have traveled all the way to the eastern seaboard in the Hudson Bay. It's quite a picture of destiny, isn't it? You can imagine in the autumn, one leaf just falls from a tree and is just going along the river and the current and wind may push it to the left or the current and wind may push it to the right. And in just one little fateful moment, its 500 or 1500 mile journey is set and determined. Two very different journeys it could go on and two very different destinations it could ultimately end up. Well, the reason I say that is that Jesus paints a picture when he returns, he likewise will separate every person who has ever lived into two groups, one on his left and and one on his right. And he will invite the group on his right to enter with him into eternal happiness. And the group on his left, he will send as far from that as he can, condemning them forever. So two totally different destinations, as if it were the Pacific Ocean and the Hudson Bay, two very different places, that everyone on earth winds up. And he says to them then, he recounts, you might say, the journey that they went on. To those uh, on his left who he is condemning, he says, uh, I was hungry and you didn't feed me, and I was in prison, and you didn't visit me, and I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. And they ask, well, when did we not do that? And he said, well, when you didn't do it for any of the least of my brothers, you didn't do it for me. So that's their, their journey they have been on. That 500-mile journey for them has been one of selfishness, of no mercy, of greed, uh, one even of great wickedness. And then he says to the group on his right, the group uh, who was going to share eternal happiness with them? Uh, come and share in happiness with me for I was hungry, and you fed me and I was, I was naked and you clothed me, and I was sick and in prison, and you came and and you visited me, and they asked the same question well, well when did we ever do that and he said well when you didn't do when you did it to the least of my brothers, you did it for me too, so come and share in my happiness so not only is their destination different, but their journey was different too. It was one full of good works, it was one full of mercy for others, it was one full of holiness and righteousness so Not just two different destinations, but two very different journeys to get there. And you can trace that journey for every one of those people all the way back to one moment when there was a fork in the river and they chose one fork over the other. And so the question we're going to ask today is, well, what is that fork and how do I go down the right path in that fork? What what today that could be in my heart would lead to a life of closeness with God, holiness, and acts of mercy, and eventually an eternity with Jesus in heaven forever? And what, on the other hand, could be in my heart that would lead to a life of selfishness, greed, wickedness, and ultimately, condemnation forever? What's, what's the decisive factor? What is it in the hearts of us that makes the difference? We're going to ask that as we look at two characters in the story Luke tells about the birth of Jesus. We're going to compare Zechariah to Mary we're going to see what the difference is between the two of them, and then we're going to see how God rescues Zechariah, one of them, from going down the wrong path and brings him back to the right path. So we're going to finish two stories that we started last week and the week before. You may notice we stopped in the middle of both of those stories. You may have been disappointed by that, but don't worry, we're going to finish them today. And then we're going to see how what Luke is setting up in those two stories he brings to completion as Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, and Elizabeth says something to Mary that answers a question we might have. So we start early in chapter one. A man named Zechariah has—he's uh, become old, and his wife with him. They're, they're both advanced in years. It says, uh, "Too old to have children, and they never had children. They're righteous people. They love the Lord. And one day, the Lord appears to Zechariah in the temple as he's doing his priestly work." Uh, It's an angel of the Lord, I'm sorry, not the Lord. And the angel tells him, your wife Elizabeth is going to bear a son. You're to name him John. And he will be a great prophet who will turn the people back to the Lord and will make ready a people prepared. We did not read two weeks ago Zechariah's response. And here it is in verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. So Zechariah asks, wait a minute. How, how could this be? My, my wife and I are too old for this to happen. And the, the Lord's response to him, the angel's response, is one of firm correction and discipline. You didn't believe my words. And so, to give you a sign that what I'm going to say is true, I'm going to make you mute and unable to speak until it comes true. And from that moment forth, Zechariah can't speak anymore. We'll read later about the day when John is born and it's all fulfilled and his tongue opens again in glorious prophecy. But for now, he just stands silent and corrected by God. Well, the next thing that we read was a young woman named Mary, and she is a virgin. She's engaged to a man named Joseph. She's never known a man before, so no way she could become pregnant. And the same angel appears to her Very similar pattern. She's scared by the angel. Angel tells her not to be afraid. The angel tells her she is blessed. And he says, you too are going to have a son and you're to name him Jesus. And he will be great. He will save his people from their sins. He will be Emmanuel, God with us. And she responds and says, well, she has a question too. Verse 24, I'm sorry, verse 34. She says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel departed from her. So, a very different experience for Mary, right? She asks, How's this gonna be since I'm a virgin? And she gets no correction no no discipline from god but instead he says well here's a very patient explanation right this will happen you'll be you'll have the holy spirit upon you this this will make the child holy hey look what happened with your relative elizabeth she got pregnant nothing will be impossible with god and so the rub is well wait a minute why did zechariah get corrected when he asked and mary did not get corrected when she asked Is it because he's old and she's young and he should know better? What's going on? What's the difference? And so one who reads the story is left wondering why the two got treated so differently, what the difference is for them, and then we go to the next story. Mary responds immediately, and this is what she does in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So John is doing quite a few things there, and he is really kind of bringing to a conclusion... Many, many points he has made thus far, many things he has said thus far. He is confirming and fulfilling words that have been spoken there in the Gospel of Luke. He has said, for instance, before that John in his mother's womb will be full of the Holy Spirit. right? be full from the Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And we see that fulfilled here in Elizabeth as the baby leaps. And then she speaks out prophecy full of the Spirit herself, even while she is carrying John. Uh, We got the sense through what Luke has been doing that what God is doing here is incredible and amazing through the two angelic stories and the way that they're kind of the climax of all these wonderful, miraculous births that have happened throughout Old Testament history. And now that's just amplified even more as this baby leaps and even Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, exclaims prophecy. We have gotten the sense already that John is great, but Jesus will be greater and he is the one that John is preparing them for and now that is heightened again as it is John who leaps in the presence of Jesus as if Jesus is the greater one and Elizabeth blesses Mary to say that she has the greater child within her. One thing Luke is doing here confirming what he said before is answering that question we have. Why did Zechariah get corrected when he asked a question? And Mary got blessed and got a good explanation When she asked a question. And the answer comes when we compare what was said to Zechariah in verse 20 with what Elizabeth says to Mary in verse 45. In verse 20, the angel says to Zechariah, And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. And here's why because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Now compare that to what's said to Mary in verse 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Zechariah did not believe there would be a fulfillment of what was said to him. Mary did believe that there would be a fulfillment of what was said to her. And this is all the difference going forward for them. Come to think of it, now that we know that, we can trace ourselves back to the questions they ask. And you can even see the unbelief a little bit in Zechariah, can't you? He doesn't say, how will the Lord do this? He says, how will I know this? Or I don't yet believe this will happen. I don't yet know this will happen. So prove it to me. Show me so that I can know. And Mary's question is not how will I know this will come true. It's how will this be, right? How will the Lord do it? So his question assumes he does not believe yet. And her question assumes that she does believe that what the angel has said will happen. This is what sends them down very different paths. This is the fork in the river. One of them believed what God told her, and the other one did not. And blessed is she who believed. That brings us to the main point I want to unpack this morning. We will talk some about Zechariah 2 and what the Lord does to bring him back into obedience. But the main point this morning is that the most blessed people in the world are the ones who believe what God tells them. If you want a fast ticket to being blessed in the eyes of God, believe what he tells you. This is often what we call in the church and in the scriptures, faith, right? Saving faith. He tells us something and we say, okay, I believe you. And with the heart of Mary, we say, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said, even though what you are saying is too wonderful to be true, too incredible, I will choose to believe it anyway. And this is part of a broader teaching, which brings us back to that river picture I gave you earlier. The broader teaching here is that belief in what God says, or faith, leads to a life of growing closeness with God and growing obedience, and eventually to a very different destination, to eternity and eternal life with Him forever. Unbelief, on the other hand, leads to a life of continued selfishness, continued greed, and continually marked by sin as it was before, and eventually to condemnation forever. Two very different journeys, two very different destinations, and the fork in the river, the difference in the river is do we believe what God is saying to us or not? Do we have faith or not? This is how it has been for all of the great heroes of the Bible. You might think all the way back to Abraham or even back to Noah, who was told that there would be a great flood upon the earth and he needed to build an ark. His journey changed after that, right? He dedicated many years, decades, I think centuries to building an ark. Why did he do that, though? Because he believed what God told him, that there would be a great flood. So his belief in what God told him led him down a different path and eventually to a very different end. This is true of Abraham, who was told when he was advanced in years, could not have a child, his wife had never born a child, that his wife was going to bear a son, and through her would be many descendants, as many as the stars in the sky, many other promises too that he was given. And the text says, even in Genesis, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then after that, every great thing he does in the story is an outworking of him believing in that promise. And all of his worst moments were an outworking of him not believing in the promise or doubting that promise. And so on it goes. The great Joshua, who led many battles of conquest for the Lord in Canaan, acted so courageously, led an army that was much smaller, and much weaker than the armies he was facing, but did it with boldness and courage, confidence he was going to win. Why did he do that? Well, because he believed what God told him. God told him he was going to win those battles, and he believed God, sent him down a very different path, and ultimately to a very different end. David did many courageous works, right? Uh, Slaying a giant, leading Israel in righteousness, turning from sin when he was confronted, all because he believed promises that God had made him. He believed that God was zealous enough to slay that giant that mocked Israel's army. And he believed that God was going to keep his promise to give his kingship to his sons. After him. And on and on it goes. Esther stands with boldness before the king and is able to rescue all of Jerusalem in one moment from destruction. She stood so courageously before the most powerful man in the world and the most powerful man in her life, her own husband, because she believed what the Lord had told her through her uncle Mordecai. He's put you in power for a time as this, and the Lord will protect his people one way or another. She believed those words and so she did something very courageous and winds up at a very different end. On and on it goes through the Old Testament, through the New Testament. When we believe what he tells us, it sends us down a different path and takes us to a different place ultimately. That comes true now here with Mary. Mary believes the word that is given to her. And notice that part of the word is that her relative Elizabeth is six months pregnant, right? Now we can't be sure by the way it's constructed, but it feels like she maybe didn't know that because as soon as she hears it, what's the next thing she does? She goes to visit Elizabeth, right? So it's you can almost see the wheels turning. Oh wait, she's pregnant too. I need to go help her. She's gonna have to give birth in three weeks the baby comes early. I gotta get there now. So she goes with haste to help Elizabeth believing what the angel has told her, that Elizabeth is pregnant. Maybe she already knew that, maybe she didn't, but she goes in faith that what the angel said is true. And she even says to him, I am the Lord's servant, may it be to me as you have said. She would then marry Joseph, her husband. She would travel with him to Bethlehem. She would All sorts of adventures wind up coming into her life because of this. And she just goes through them and treasures them all up in her heart with a spirit that at once is just the beauty of, of, of biblical femininity and the beauty of humanity under God at the same time. I'm the Lord's servant. God, may it be to me as you have said. This is what faith does in our lives. Sends us down a very different path to a very different end. Of all the hard-to-believe things that we must believe, uh, there's one that's more important than all of them. Uh, and that's what we often call the gospel message. This is a message that I proclaim essentially every Sunday here from this pulpit, that that God did become man in Jesus Christ. And he did so so that we could be reconciled to him. We who had sinned greatly against him uh, we who owe him all of our worship and obedience, but have given, given him none of what we owe him. He sent his own son to become flesh, to be here on the earth, to live a perfectly righteous life with no sin, to die offering payments for sins, to rise from the dead, to guarantee eternal life to all who would trust him, and then went back up into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God and will come again to judge every last one of us. He offers to us with an open hand for anyone who will trust me. I offer forgiveness for all of your sins paid for by my death. I offer eternal life guaranteed in your resurrection that will look just like the resurrection that I went through. And I offer life forever in a glorified body and a perfected world in my kingdom when I return. That's the good news. And if we're honest, that's about as easy to believe as though you have never known a man and know no husband, the Lord will place a child within you, right? You will bear a son. That's just too incredible to believe, isn't it? He came, God came to earth and he died and he rose and he paid for sin. I have forgiveness for my sins. And yet the spirit of faith says, yeah, I'm the, may it be to me as you have said, amen, right? I will believe what the Lord has told me. And so if there's anything I could just push into your heart this morning, it's, it's of all the things you must believe, believe, believe that. Believe that news. If you're willing to believe it, that will send you down a very different path. Many winds in the road. It may be a fifteen hundred mile journey before you get to victory in the Hudson Bay at the end. But it'll be a different path and a different end. So put that faith in Jesus. Believe in Him. This is why the the letters that are written after this in the Bible. Now I've gone through what happens before, but after. People like Paul and Peter write these letters and they say things like, for we are saved by grace through faith. All right? And that's a gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. Why is that? Because the most blessed people in the world are not the ones that work the hardest. They are the ones who believe what God tells them and we are saved by faith. That's why Hebrews 11 goes on and on and on with example after example of heroes who did great things by faith. They did that because the fork in the river is faith. Do we believe what God is telling us? That means that in your life, if you're willing to trust him today, your life will begin to look very different, right? You'll go down a different river, your Sundays will look very different. You'll spend them worshiping maybe with us or maybe with another gospel preaching church every time. Because now our heart beats for Jesus. We love him. We want to be with his people. We want to be in the room where he comes and gathers with us when we gather. And so we find ourselves here as often as we can. And your, your Sunday afternoon to your Saturday nights look very different as well. Now walking in a growing closeness with God Morning or night, reading his word and praying to him, growing close to him, living in righteousness through the day, seeking him, seeing more and more your sin in your life and turning from it and confessing it to God. It's a very different lifestyle probably than what you were living before you came to Christ. But that's the different river that faith sends you down. And that's the way that our life ought to look different after we come to Christ Jesus. Some of us have lived that life for a long time. All right, many of us here have trusted Jesus for well north of a decade, or some of us several decades. Some of you have a half century of following Jesus to your record. And for us, as we look at Mary's faith, her belief, and the blessedness she had from her belief, what that means for us is that we need to believe all of the hard-to-believe things that are in this book. Because the gospel message isn't the only hard-to-believe thing in this book, is there? There's one point where a donkey talks. Uh, there's one point where an axe head floats. I mean, there's all kinds of things that are just hard to believe in the book. Some of them are hard to believe because, like what Mary heard and like the message of the gospel, they're just, they're just too wonderful. We, we look at them and we say, well, that makes logical sense, but that's too wonderful to believe. As I talk to Christians... I think probably one of the hardest to believe truths in the whole Bible is also one of our favorite truths in the Bible. And that is that God really does love you, right? It seems easy to believe, doesn't it? But the more we probe into our hearts and the more we think, the more we want to say, I mean, me? Like, really? Like, God loves me? That's too wonderful to believe, And I can't tell you how many counseling sessions I've had or how many casual conversations in Sunday school or in the hallways or on the streets where if we're really honest, we just have the hardest time in the world believing that, yes, he really does love us. It's about as wonderful and hard to believe as a virgin hearing you will conceive and bear a son and he will be the son of God that will save us from our sins. How easy would it have been for Mary to say, I mean, me? The Lord, the Lord would do that for me. I, I, can't, I can't believe that. And yet in the same way our hearts are going to say, God God loves me? I can't, I can't believe that. That's too wonderful for me to believe. And so on other weeks, I often try to convince you from this word that he really does love you. And I'll try to make an argument that'll show you from logic or from rhetoric that he really does love you. But today I'm going to do something different. Today I'm going to call you instead, without anybody hammering at home, simply because he says, God shows his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And simply because he says, how great the love lavished upon us all that we could be children of God. And simply because he says words that I wonder if every last one of us have memorized, for God so loved the world. Just because he says those things, even though they're too incredible to believe, what I want to call you to do is, will you believe that he loves you anyway? Without any proof, without anybody arguing it, just on his words that say, I love you enough that I made you my child. His words that say, I love you enough that my own son's death shows my love for you. Would you, on hearing it from him, put all of your doubt aside and believe, he really does love me. As incredible as it is, he really does love me. Some truths in the Bible are not really too wonderful to believe, but they're hard to add up and reconcile. Right. It's, not, it's not an emotional difficulty. It's just, wait, how could both of those be true? Uh, for instance, I was, I was talking with, uh, my, actually my wife was talking with our son recently, and uh, he said, well, mom, how can it be that God made everything and that God is not evil, and yet there's so much evil in the world that he made? Right. Ten years old, and he's adding this stuff up. And uh, I've got a thousand-page book about that, but I don't think my ten-year-old wants a thousand-page book about that. Uh, Some of these things are hard to add up, aren't they? Or another one, uh, often in this age, really tough for us, how could God have made men and women equally in his image, right? Genesis 1, 27 and 28, male and female, he made them both in his image, and yet have given men and women such different roles in the church and in society, I'm sorry, in the church and in the home. How can those both be true? We wrestle with that, don't we? It's hard to harmonize both of those. One that's very common is how could the Bible teach that I make real decisions that I'm responsible for and also teach that God foreordained everything that anyone will ever do from before the beginning of time? How can they both be true, right? So, so many truths, like I could go on and on. How could God be three and one? There's so many of them, right? And we look at them and we say, God, I can't add that up. Like I can't make logical sense of that. Well, this is the very situation that Mary was in, right? She hears, you've known no man, you will not know a man until the child comes, and yet you will bear a son. And naturally, she's like, mm, I have some questions, right? How, how? That's not how this works, right? And so she asks with a faith-filled heart, how will you do this? But she doesn't refuse to believe anything that the angel tells her, Right? And this is what we have to do when we're faced with some of these truths that it's hard to believe all of them together. All right, so if it's hard to believe that God made men and women equal and yet he does give us different roles in the home and the church, faith says, well... I'm the Lord's servant, may it be to me as you have said, and then comes with, okay, Lord, how how does that work, right? Are there answers in your word about how that works? Faith looks at truths like predestination and true real decisions that we make that really make a difference and say, Lord, how is that? I'll believe them both because you teach them both, but, but how is it? Will you answer in your word and help me along here? What we cannot do is choose one over the other when that happens. Any more than Mary could have chosen, well, sounds like I am going to bear a son, so I got to give up the purity thing, or "Mm, I'm going to stay pure and I'm not going to bear a son. She could have chosen one or the other. She chose both because the Lord gave her both, and we have to do the same thing. Some of us sometimes are even held back in our growth in Christ because we don't want to believe everything that's in the Word. We like one side of, of an issue more than another side. And so I say, oh, I'll take that one and I'll hold that one at arm's length, all right? But faith, believing him, going down the right road in the river says, God, what you say in this word, I'll receive it all. I'll take every bit of it. So there's a little bit of what it means to have faith be a fork in the road for you. It sends you down a very different path. Believing in everything that he says sends you down a life that looks very different. Now, one thing I said earlier in that leaf picture, right, is that if, if the leaf going down the river winds up in the wrong river, well, then it goes further and further down the mountain and the way gravity works, it's never going to come back up and go along the right river, right? It keeps you going down to the wrong ocean. And so some of you may have caught on to this already, but one of the questions we got to ask is, well, wait a minute. That's not exactly what happened to Zechariah, is it? He didn't go down the wrong path until he met final condemnation. Actually, he got redeemed and, and put back on the right path. And so let's spend the rest of this morning looking at Zechariah and asking, well, why did the Lord put him on the right path? What we saw in his story, Zechariah was already a righteous man, him and his wife both. So, so he is a righteous husband, a righteous priest, leading his wife in righteousness, loving God, kneeling before God. And he doesn't believe what the angel says to him. So he's starting to go down the wrong river, right? Not believing. And essentially what the Lord does is kind of take an oar out of a boat. You know, if the leaf's going down the wrong stream and just takes that oar and just smack, smack, get get back down the right path. Sends him down the correct stream. And it's not the most pleasant image in the world, isn't it? A leaf getting beaten with an oar to go back down the right stream. But it eventually leads to the leaf going back down the right stream. The Lord gives to him a sign. But it's not the sign he wants. He's going to be mute until these things happen. That, though, sends him back down the right path. And when his son is born, well, first he goes home when his uh, duty is over with. And so you can imagine he's faithful even to to believe now. Okay, God will do what he says and we must do our part. I must go home and we must do this, right? So, so he believes and then months later the child is born and he writes on a tablet. They all think his child's name is going to be Zechariah. He writes his name is John, right? So he believes what the angel says to him and then his tongue is opened, Then he stands up and speaks prophecy that's longer even than what Elizabeth said in today's story, more poetic and eloquent, has all these images, and it's in parallelism, and it's just so beautiful. So the Lord fills him, and now he is back on the right path. So the Lord didn't let him go down the wrong river. He grabbed him and pulled him back and sent him down the right river. What's going on here is when God's people stray into unbelief, he disciplines us back into faith. Good fathers do this to their children, right? The children start going down the wrong path, the father corrects them. Sometimes it's painful, sometimes it's hard but it yields the fruit of righteousness because it sends the son back down the right path, takes him off the wrong path and back down the right path. And so the Lord says in the book of Proverbs and it's quoted in the book of Hebrews, uh, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Don't grow weary of his reproof. For the Lord disciplines and chastises every son he loves and corrects every son that he receives. So, Basically, our father in heaven is a good dad. And when we start going down the wrong path into unbelief, well, he gets the oar out of the boat and smacks the leaf back into the right path until we're going down the right place again. This happens many times in the Old Testament too. God's people, Israel, they were very safely and squarely God's people, walking through the desert, headed to the promised land. There was no way they were not going to make it to the promised land. They were the children of God. God even calls them my son. Out of Israel, I've called, out of Egypt, I have called my son, he says, of Israel. They fall into unbelief. They bicker, they complain, and then they refuse to even go into the promised land when the Lord brings them there. And so he brings his discipline upon them. Because you wouldn't believe you're going to wander in the desert for 40 years, one generation is going to pass away completely before I take you into the promised land. So his son, his Israel, did make it in, but there's a detour, right, because of their disobedience. Uh, King David at one point late in his life orders a census because of pride and vanity. He shouldn't have ordered it. It was against the law or he was bound to break the law in the way that he did it. He shouldn't have done it. And the Lord says to him, because you did this, you had to choose between these three punishments and they're all terrible. Or in the law, the Lord says to Israel, if if you lose your faith to me, if you stop believing in me, and it gets this bad and you fall into idolatry and it gets that bad, I'm going to send you out into exile. And then when your hearts turn back to me, I'll bring you back right? And that's exactly what happens, just as he says. They're sent out into exile for their idolatry. Their hearts turn back to the Lord, and then they come back home to their land. And now here is Zechariah, a righteous man who in one moment says, I'm not going to believe what God says, finds discipline from the Lord, right? Because you did not believe, here's what's going to happen to you. So the pattern then is, we, his people, we stray He tells us, because of that, this is going to happen. And then we receive that correction, and then we're brought back into righteousness, right? We stray, we learn, he says to us what he's going to do, he does it, and then we come back Four points there in that pattern. Now, that's important because whenever we talk about God's discipline of his people, there's always somebody in the crowd, maybe many of you, wondering, wait a minute, am I under God's... Is my suffering because I have done wrong, and is God disciplining me? And we just got to look at that pattern, okay? Is there a very clear thing you're doing wrong before God? Okay, the second is God saying, here's what I'm going to do because of that. He speaks through his word. Is there anything you can find in the word that says, when you do this, the Lord does this? Some things, there's a connection in the word. Other things, there's not a connection in the word. Can you find it in the scriptures? Cause and effect, you do this, the Lord will do this. Okay, then third is what you're experiencing, what the Bible said would happen because of the thing that you did. And then fourth, if that's you, okay, come back into faithfulness, right? Stop that, whatever it is that you're doing. Sometimes the the punishment will go on even after you've come back as a reminder. That happened for Zechariah. He seems to believe immediately and be corrected, and yet he's mute until the child is born. Sometimes it goes on as a reminder, but it's always a call back into faith. The key element, I think, to look for is, does the Word of God connect what I have done with what I am going through? We can't just make up those connections, right? We would want to torment ourselves by making them up, but we can't do that. If the word connects what we are going through with what we did, well, then maybe we are. And if we are, what do we do? Come back to the Lord. So there's a little bit about why Zechariah went through what he went through. Why did that happen to him? The Lord wanted to bring him back to the right path. It may be that the Lord has pricked your heart this morning. Maybe he's just tapped it a little bit as we talk about that. Oh, I, I do fall into this all the time and the word does connect that with what I'm going through. And maybe even through Zechariah's experience, you can see what that looks like and see, okay, I need to come back to the Lord. If that's you, we'll have a moment when you can turn and voice those words to the Lord. But what we have in the two of them are a picture in Mary of what faith looks like and how faith responds in action. And in Zechariah, what the good and kind discipline of God looks like. Would we receive both? Would we be filled with faith? Would we trust in him? And if he is correcting us, would we receive us? The divide in the river is, do we believe what he tells us? Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and let's ask him to help us with that.